Well, thank you very much. This is very interesting talking to you. Thanks I really so appreciate much. In this podcast, I talk with Dr. Elizabeth Doherty, who was instrumental in helping pass California's gray water laws. She did this by networking different demographics together, bringing the hippies who knew about the gray water together with the Stanford engineers and the local government and state government officials. She also talks about her organization's project to get people to know their watersheds, to learn the histories, and to connect with the water in their neighborhoods. And she talks about the intersection of the social justice movement with the water movement. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Doherty, and I am the director of a nonprofit called Holy H2O, which is located up here in Northern California. And uh, we work currently on getting people emotionally and intellectually connected with their watersheds as a motivator for them to do water conservation and water reuse. Cool, awesome. Do you want to say a little bit about how you got into water? I really came in through the side door. Um, when I started Holy H2O, I had taken a one-day rainwater harvesting class in which I had never touched a rainwater harvesting system. <laughs> it was pretty much all theoretical. And um, a week later, basically, I had started a nonprofit <laughs> related to that with the assistance of uh, Marin Municipal Water District and some of the great women that got things going in California in general, Rosie Jenks and Sarah Minnick at the SFPUC, San Francisco Public Utility Commission. I had been working in energy efficiency and decided that wasn't really my passion and taken some time off to go and do a disaster relief project in Peru, which turned out to be all about sanitation. And they were going to rebuild it back just the way it had been before. And I thought, well, if you're going to rebuild, why not do it sustainably? And so I started to hook that organization up with a lot of people who were doing really fascinating local projects in water reuse in Peru. And when I came back to the U.S., I took this rainwater harvesting class. And next thing I know, I'm starting an organization called Holy H2O. But honestly, I knew almost nothing about water. I was just a good organizer. Hmm. And what year was that? That was 2009. Okay. So that was 13 years ago. And Holy is spelled H-W-H-O-L-L-Y. Right, like the whole, as you love to work with, the whole water cycle. Right. And so we're really trying to get people to understand that it is a water cycle. Like one of the first things I ask everybody... I have two main questions I ask people, and that is, uh, where does the water come from that you're drinking today? Uh, in the case of where we're sitting right now, it is a single river coming out of my tap. So I literally uh, am made of the McCombney River because that's the water I drink. And you're in Oakland. I'm in Oakland. Uh, so most of the East Bay, not all of the East Bay, but most of the East Bay is the McCombney River. So I ask people where their water comes from. And then the second question I ask them is, how old is the water that you've either drunk today or taken a shower in today? And of course, people don't know the answer to that. And this leads me into telling them, well, the answer is, well, I don't even want to answer that question. You should listen to our podcast, H2WO. The answer's in there. But what I will say is that most people are shocked to find out how old the water is that they touch today. And that really helps teach people about there being only so much water on the planet that's been cycling around for the last, as long as water's been on the planet. I'm still not giving the answer away. And that water's just been cycling around and cycling around. People get all freaked out about recycled water. It's all recycled water. It's always just been traveling around this planet. And up until about 400 years ago, it did it really well. And it cleaned itself really efficiently. And it's doing that through a lot of the processes that you teach about. Um, and uh, it could continue to do that except for 
the human water cycle is so out of touch with the natural water cycle that we've made it almost impossible for water to continue as a healthy resource on this planet. Mm. Wow. So, yeah, so, yeah, it's nature actually has natural cleansing mechanisms. Like, it's so interesting. Like, we put so much energy into building all this. It's crazy. Clean the water, but actually the biology of nature does a lot of the work for us. Um, Yeah, so a lot of times people will talk about all this new technology. And what I want to do is sit everybody down and talk about the old technology that we have forgotten about and bring all of that knowledge into the present and that whatever we're going to do technologically, basing it on these old systems, time trialed systems of thousands and thousands of years of humans using water on this planet. And then before Homo sapiens, again, water still traveling around, lots of different species are using it, but it's still usable to everybody until Homo sapiens of the modern capitalistic uh, era got their hands on it. So you were trained as an anthropologist. And uh, how, what, can you tell us a little bit about the anthropology of water or the anthropological story of water? Wow. Well, again, I'd like to send you to one of our podcasts because there's a, a an interesting podcast that we did about where does water come from? And one of the two guests in that is a Native American um, narrative psychologist and storyteller. And he wonderfully knows the origin story of water from a number of different Native American groups, the Diné, um, which are also known as Navajo, but the proper name for them and the name that is not insulting is Diné, and a number of other Native American groups. And so That's one of the things that we're trying to do is tell the story, tell, uh, what what was a question somebody asked recently? What does water want to say to us? And I think that's such a great question. What does water have to say? Like we're always talking about water. And my question to the Tuolumne River some years ago when I went up to make a film on it was, what do you want to say? Tuolumne River, what do you want this movie to be about. And I think, you know, here I am an anthropologist. And so you would think I would go to the people first. And no, no, I like to go to the water first, because the water has its own voice. And, you know, you can call it woo woo or whatever you want. But everything has energy. And water has energy. And I will tell you that the energy of the Tuolumne River is very different that's the water source for San Francisco and a lot of the South Bay, is very different than, say, the Yuba River. Totally different kind of vibe that river has. Yuba River feeds down into the Sacramento that comes down into the Delta. So places like Contra Costa or down in um, uh, L.A. are getting Yuba River water. Totally different vibe than Tuolumne River water. So I'd say if you're working in water, the first thing to do is go to the water and ask it what it wants. That's my advice as an anthropologist. Mm. <laughs> How would you characterize our current civilization, civilizational relationship to water with, like, say, the Native Americans or other cultures in the past? Um... Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I did my work in the Panama Canal, my uh, PhD fieldwork in the Panama Canal watershed, and then down on the border with the Darien, Panama's border with the Darien. And, you know, in Panama, as in many places in the world, a lot of travel is done by river. So people's relationship with water is absolutely direct. It, like, Anybody can tell you about the, not anybody, but because modern day humans have gotten so disconnected, you know, and in part because if you talk about the energy of a river, people go, oh, that's really woo woo. So that's how disconnected we are, that we think getting to know a river or a body of water is, you know, like some kind of spiritual BS as opposed to people in other places like this guy that we just interviewed in Nigeria, who was talking about the water that he lives near and how mothers bring their babies there uh, to get the energy of that water body. 
So in a lot of places in the world, people draw, like when I lived in Panama, I hauled my water. You know, I had to haul the water. Anytime I used water, I was hauling it. Um, so people's experience, like they know the river. They laughed at me when I pitched my tent down on the edge of the river. They thought I was just a crazy white lady. And I was a crazy light, white lady because I didn't know the river. I didn't know how fast it could rise if it rains 30 miles away. And I don't even know it's rained over there. So, right, I learned so much just living in a place where people lived with their water source directly. They lived from the river. They took their water from the river if they were cooking, if they were bathing, all of those things. And so I would characterize modern day, especially, um, yeah, modern day communities that are based in um, industry and based... Um, you know, there are two different things. One is very physical and one in a sense is imaginary in the capitalist monetary system. I would say we have gotten so disconnected, not just from water, you know, like before we started this recording, we were talking about soil and soil hydration. You know, people don't understand if you're building uh, new property, new, uh, like down the street, somebody's just redoing a house. They're going to cover that whole property with cement. I've already watched them prep to cover the whole entire property with cement. So where is all that water going to go? They don't know and they don't even think about it. It's not in their brain. What do we do? Get the water off the property. That's what you want, right? It's our most valuable thing that we have in life. And all people are trying to do, because we so don't understand, is get it as far away, mm. right? You take water... <laughs> Like, I think a lot. We respect water so much that we actually shit in it. Like, that tells you everything right there. We shit in our water. Right? It doesn't make any sense at all. And so, to me, that tells you a lot about our relationship. Like, I understand disease. I understand environmental health. I get all that. I'm not saying we should all suddenly, you know, you know shit in our side yards or something. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we've developed our systems. And so now we have wastewater treatment plants and we have these, you know, megalopolis where, you know, even New York, they used to take their poop and haul it up to the farmers outside of New York City. They'd cover their fields with that poop, grow the food, ship that food back to New York. There's an automatic recycling system going on. Mm -hmm. All the water getting used for that is also going back to New York City, right? Because the water's embedded now in the plants, in the fruit, in the vegetables. That's going back to the city too. Instead of a place like California where... We've got almond trees growing, I think at least 80%, if not more, I just published something on this, uh, of that gets exported. So all this water in California that we're using on our crops is getting exported out of the state, out of the country, right? So what are we doing? We love our water so much we shit in it. We love our water so much that we use it all to grow things that we don't even eat in our own country. I mean, we eat, but not that much worse, right? So, and then we send it to waste treatment plants, or before that we would just poop in the creek and send it down to the bay, you know, which is why they wanted to fill up the San Francisco Bay with fill, because it stunk so much and it was so disgusting until Save the Bay started, you know? So I feel like we're constantly doing things and then 30 years later trying to undo them. And so my, my request now to the general homo sapien population is stop moving forward. You're just screwing up more things, you know, like let's go back, see where we came from and then see how to mimic those systems, bringing in whatever new tech that would be beneficial for those systems. Mm. Yeah. Brock Dolman says, um, shit in the carbon cycle not in the water, water cycle. cycle right yeah right and like and the the problem is when you go to civil engineering school or you know hydrologist school 
you're kind of learning all these things, but you're building on the wrong paradigm. So you're getting very technical and you're getting very good at measuring and scientifically doing the thing. But if everything you're doing is shitting in the water cycle and right. all you're building all infrastructure on top of that, even though you're technically brilliant, you're still doing the wrong paradigm. You need to, you should be applying all that civil engineering brilliance to shitting in the right, <laughs> carbon right. cycle. You know? in the carbon and, cycle. And then we could actually make progress because right. there is a lot of skill sets in that civil engineering hydrology world. Absolutely. Are you kidding? In fact, I have two um, water engineers working for me as grant writers. Wow, do they ever know things I don't know? You know, it's, it's phenomenal, the level of their knowledge, but I agree. We're applying it to the wrong paradigms. In fact, Nick Bertulis and I have really gone around the block on this stuff because I tend to fall away from the technological solutions in a desire to go back and get everybody thinking about how we used to do it. And, uh, you know, so Nick and I have battled it out about bringing technology in sort of too early in my mind. And, and Nick's been, uh, you know, Nick Bertulis, another great water um, warrior, but even more so a water scientist and water self sort of sought self-taught water engineer in the sense that he's constantly experimenting with different kinds of systems and seeing what works and what doesn't work well that worked here in oakland but it doesn't work you know in the next town over because of the differences in conditions so um yeah anyway yeah this this focusing on tech i i it's got a lot to give us but it's got to be in the right, um, uh, yeah, it's got to be set up in the right lane. Right. And, and part of what you're trying to do to create that context to do the right science is kind of also weaving the stories, right? So totally. Because the engineers are coming in, but they don't understand the whole story of what happened in our relationship. And so do you want to say a little bit about your kind of weaving the water stories that are happening sure. in, the, in the East Bay, in the San Francisco Bay Area? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, and you know, I kind of came to this late, the storytelling thing, and I had to kind of get beat over the head with people from the permaculture world really focusing on storytelling. And mm -hmm. finally, finally, like so many things, you know, I get really focused, and then I realize, oh, th this is the best thing we could do, is to get people to the heart of the story. And so here in the East Bay, what Holy H2 is been doing is creating a program again thanks to another organization walking water um, who really got focused again on storytelling and on water and getting people into their watersheds um, we uh, started a program called walking waterhoods a waterhood being a watershed neighborhood and so we're trying to show people that every watershed has its own personality just like I was talking about rivers, you know, the Tuolumne River watershed versus the McCallumne River versus the Yuba River. Same thing on a small scale. I'm right over Derby Creek. It is literally buried from its headwaters down to the culvert pipe that lets it out into the bay. So I don't even know the personality of this creek. But the next creek over, Temescal Creek, I'm telling that creek story. Well, not me. I shouldn't say I am. That's that's wrong. Many people are telling that creek story. We've got hordes of interns, literally, that have worked on Temescal Creek and finding out the story. Who lives there? What's the flora there? What's the fauna? How do we find that out? Well, the interns walk it, but they're also using iNaturalist, which is another phenomenal tool for getting to know your watershed. So we use this tool, iNaturalist, where citizen scientists or community scientists are out there building ecological records of what lives where. So a uh, lot of things aren't present when an intern is walking it, like you're not going to see often, you're not going to see a porcupine or you're not going to see a deer or you're not going to see, you know, a black, a, a, a black headed Phoebe. But somebody else did on INAT, on iNaturalist, and so you can go back to that ecological record. And then we're telling the, his, the human history as well. So throughout each watershed, we're getting, we're breaking each creek up into one mile sections, and each section's got a story. You know, the headwaters has one story, and then the middle part where 
like in say Sossel Creek. Part of that's built over, part of it's open, and part of it's now daylighted, meaning it's been covered and it's been uncovered. So um, each part of that creek has a different story. And so we've now just hired two um, historians to do research specifically on the BIPOC history. You know, I, Oakland, I don't even think it's 50% white. I think it's majority people of color. But if you look at the available histories, even of the watersheds, what can I tell you? Well, um, Anthony Chabot built the dam at Lake Temescal. Okay, white guy. So we know all about Anthony Chabot. I can tell you about how he started up at, you know, being a, a lumberjack at the head of headwaters of Salsa Creek, got kicked out. So, oh no, no, that's a, what's his name? Oh, the guy that, sorry, wrong, wrong, wrong history. Um, but I can tell you a lot about these guys. He started the um, hydraulic mining up in uh, the gold country, and then he came back and used that technology here. Okay, but guess what? It turns out that the people who really built that dam were a bunch of Chinese men, and they had a camp up there, and many of them were killed uh, building the dams because they were using nitroglycerin to blow things up. You know, all sorts of things were going down, Nobody's got that story. All we know is there were Chinese men there. That's it. That's it. Nobody even knows that very soon after they finished doing that, they passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in the state of California, and Chinese folks couldn't even work here anymore after they built the railroad, built all the infrastructure, then they get forced out. Nobody's telling that story. Well, I would like to tell that story to the Chinese community that lives here in the East Bay. I'd like to, to know that history. A lot of uh, Latinx people were responsible for the bottom part of Salsa Creek not getting covered up. Okay, nobody, I didn't know that story. I just happened to meet a, a, a woman that's lived along Salsa Creek for 50 years who told me that. That's how come that part of the creek isn't covered. Okay, these stories are embedded in the creeks, but not embedded in our brains. So let, let, I just want to talk, explain to the listener what covering a creek means. So basically, yeah. So it, it the creek is put underground, put into pipes. Is that right? And then, yeah. And then you put cement, pavement, and everything over it. Yeah, they might build uh, streets on top of it. Like they, there was a, a a part of Temescal Creek that was supposed to be uncovered. Instead, they just built a building on top of it. That creek can never be uncut and when they uncover a creek that's been covered the term is daylighting and that term used all over the world hap started here in berkeley on strawberry creek the first creek of that ever got daylighted with the asterisk that actually napa creek or napa maybe river got daylighted first but uh Carol Schemmerling, I think, is the person who coined that phrase on Strawberry Creek. How long ago did she coin that phrase? Uh, that was that park was built in the 90s, I mm. think. We've got a whole um, uh, film about it on YouTube, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, I'm always curious about like these some kind of subculture ideas that grow, and like the daylighting is like one of these you know interesting ideas. I mean, I was actually really surprised when I heard that the creeks were submerged and that. You actually had to bring them back up and daylight them. Right. So again, and this all has to do with where did the wealthy people, wealthy white people live, and then where did everybody else live? So in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, and you can see this on old advertisement, housing was built uh, more and more and more in the upper part of the watersheds, and on the advertisement it says and this was all late 1800s to the early 1920s probably, um, on the ads it says, no Chinese, no Japanese, no Africans can buy or rent here. So all those white people, and there's literally pillars that mark the entrances and by dark, literally all the brown and black people had to be out of those zones, you know? And so, 
um, in those places, the creeks remained uncovered. And those people all dumped their trash and sewage so that as you went down into the lower part of the watersheds where the poorer people lived, it all stunk. It was full of garbage. It was full of poop, you know? And so eventually people were like, well, we should cover these over. They're health hazards. And they were health hazards, but only for the poor people, if you know what I mean. So because the wealthy people are living up Creek. And so they started to cover it. The cities started to cover it. And basically the second they started covering it, people started to clamor for them getting uncovered again, you know, and unfortunately what's now happened like strawberry creek in downtown san francisco there was a big effort to uncover that creek or daylight that creek at one point somebody from the city just called me two weeks ago to talk about daylighting that creek the problem is incisement and what that means is and this is something brad you mentioned him earlier uh, brock uh, dolman always says about water slow it spread it sink it. Well, you don't do that when you cover a creek up. Instead, what happens is the creeks get incised. And that means that there's the water is confined. So let me just say another thing about hydrology. Water moves and it doesn't move in a straight line. If you ever see water in a straight line, that's an unnatural thing and a human had their hand on it. So water's more like a snake and it moves. And the banks of a river or the banks of a creek move over time. You know, you can see that great map of the um, Mississippi River where somebody mapped uh, through doing um, satellite imagery all the different paths. And it's amazing, you know, like 40, 60 mile changes in the riverbanks. Amazing, you know, a huge river like that. So same thing on little creeks and little uh, streams as well. It's moving. But once you get humans moving in and it urbanized, which the East Bay is, those creeks are all now restricted. So they basically have to move in a straight line. And because they're doing that, they're cutting further and the water flow is cutting further and further down because they can't move to the side. And so that creek gets incised, meaning it's so far down, like Strawberry Creek where they wanted to daylight it, it's 18 feet down. So what are you gonna do there? How are you gonna open up that creek when it's 18 feet below the sidewalk level, but you only wanna open it 10 feet wide? Doesn't work. So daylighting those creeks doesn't work. The, I mean, you could do it and spend millions and millions and millions of dollars. But Daylighting Creek already costs millions of dollars. And so doing it on creeks that are incised in, in urban areas, frankly, as much as I personally hate to say it, doesn't make any sense. Mm. You know? There uh, are some places it's okay, but some not so okay. Is, it, is this happening around the world too, this daylighting and also covering up of creeks? Yeah, of course. So what are some of the cities or that daylighting is spread to? That, I don't, that I can't answer. I okay. don't know enough about it. And which cities have covered up a lot of their creeks? Do you know? Or? I, any city, every mm -hmm. city. You know, it, every creek or every river start most of them start off with the tiniest little stream you go to the you were probably just at the headwaters of the shasta river right it's it's a tiny little hole in the ground so how does that become a river that's 40 feet across by the time it hits sacramento it does that because it's got it's got lots of other water flow coming into it as it goes down. So there are other creeks like the Sacramento, it's got the Feather, it's got the Yuba coming into it. What's the other major river coming into it? Oh, Shasta River, it, that all becomes the Sacramento River. So all that water, um, or even a simple creek like um, Sausal Creek here in the East Bay, as you walk Sausal Creek, the parts that are open, you'll see there's all these different little hillsides. And if it's raining, rivulets of water are coming in. 
right now, most of the water is coming in through storm drains from our streets, but if that hadn't been the case, it would have been seeping down into the ground that is now all covered with cement and coming through the watershed down into the creek all along the watersheds. So any creek or river is filled up of other creeks and rivers feeding into it. You know, you've got secondary rivers, tertiary rivers, and that tells you how many creeks or major sources of water are coming into that. So all this goes back to how many are covering their creeks, everybody, because San Francisco, full of creeks, full of creeks, but they're all covered. And all that water is now going through um, culverts or pipes and getting carried down to the bay. So you don't see any of those creeks anymore. Mm. Yeah. So, so it seems like one of, the, one of the implications of covering up all these creeks is that, I mean, the creeks were, you know, would have riparian vegetation and you know, plants alongside the river. And so there's a whole way that the rivers can cool towns because totally. the evapotranspiration of the water cools water brings the heat away um so by like all these modern towns covering up the whole creek system we're kind of heating them up right yeah this is um you know the urban heat island effect which is basically what you're referring to that is created through a number of different um manners and you know the one we focus on is cement and the reflection of cement and the lack of trees so when uh, the sunlight hits cement. Obviously, you're going to, the heat cement itself, like any rock, heats up. It holds on to that heat. And because a lot of concrete is white, it's also reflecting that heat, uh, excuse me, yeah, reflecting that heat back. Streets absorb that heat and hold on to it. They also let go of some of that heat. But so, Actually, cities, and we have less trees, so cities are heating up more and more and more. That's the urban heat island effect. Also, exactly what you just said, Alpha, and that is that there's no longer water. If I water my backyard, my backyard cools down by five degrees instantly. If I'm watering the plants, and I hand water, I'm not a, don't tell anybody I hand water, but I do, I hand water and that cools down my garden right away. If you've got moving water, it's cooler right around there. I mean, you go to the ocean, you go to the river, that's apparent to anybody. So that we're covering all of our creeks, we're adding to our own woes in urban areas of them heating up faster, needing to use air conditioning, more electricity, more water. Like we, we keep creating these systems that are self-defeating in what, at this moment, we, you know, I'll finally use the word should, should be trying to do, which is trying to repair our planet by restoring natural systems. Right. Yeah. And then these urban heat domes then alter the path of jet streams and the path of water vapor in the air and extreme weather. So it has all these implications. So, I mean, it, so, so it seems like there's two reasons to kind of, I mean, there's multiple reasons to uncover. I mean, and uh, I mean, just telling the story, like people kind of want just you kind of want the rivers to be there, right? I mean, there's just kind of this niceness. And then there's also this ecosystem function. Totally. These still ecosystem services. And so I think if that story, so that story needs to be told more. And like, you know, you were talking earlier about civil engineering is based on certain paradigms, but the civil engineers maybe are not so aware of these paradigms of like urban heat dome or like how the creeks, uh, like the, yeah. the whole connected story, because it's all kind of a connected story. Like maybe yes. you're paving over to, stop the garbage or whatever there's multiple reasons to do that but then maybe you're not seeing the full story and so if you look at the full story the whole story then maybe there's and then the civil engineering can build on that whole story and maybe they can guide because you might need some civil engineering tricks to figure out how to daylight properly some of these absolutely these creeks again you know yeah i mean now that we've created this situation um repairing the situation yeah like i like we've been talking about this whole time it's both returning to the old and bringing the new into that story, I think. Um, and telling these stories is, is really important. Like San Francisco's water source, the Tuolumne River, for instance. How, and this is another good question to ask. How much water gets taken out of the river's watershed for human use and how much is left for the ecosystem 
I love that we call them services. <laughs> you know, like everything's serving something in this life. Um, okay. But the ecosystem services. So in the case of the Tuolumne River, they take up to 80% of the river out of the watershed ecosystem. That leaves 20% for ecosystem services. There's no way that a river is a river's ecosystem, not just the water. Like people often think a river is just the water in, in, in a stream bed or, or a river bed. That is not a, that is not a river. The river as somebody uh, who wonderful teacher taught me looking at um, Sossel Creek, that creek goes all the way up to the tree line because there's all sorts of creatures all the way up to there that are using that creek and that are impacting that creek. The tree line that's holding some of the evapotranspiration in into the watershed as opposed to letting it all go out. All these things are going on. So a river is not just the water in a, 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 a geologic um, structure. It's much more than that. It's an entire ecosystem and an ecosystem really, and again, is more than like, oh, it's a plant, it's an animal. These are dynamic relationships we're talking about. And so if the river is warmer today than it was yesterday, because the engineers decided to let it out an hour later, because that's better for the people who are rafting, hey, that might kill all the salmon in the river. Right. So like you were saying, the engineers, a lot of times, you know, I mean, they've got to know a lot of stuff, but unfortunately, a lot of them are not taught the watershed story. And so, you know, as we've learned over and over and over or maybe not learned over and over and over, you know, whatever we do often has unintended consequences. And, you know, uh, great solar, 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 let's have solar, solar. And so now we're friggin' cutting down ecosystems and covering over sensitive desert ecosystems with solar farms instead of putting them on the rooftop. Just because it's solar, uh, uh, you'll, they'll put it, uh, you know, on certain ecosystems over my dead body. You know what I mean? Like, we got to think about what we're doing, the whole picture. You can't just go, oh, solar, it's good then. It's solar. Oh, wind farm, it's good then. It's wind. Hey, I'm an ecologist before I'm a humanitarian. I care a lot more about the planet than I do Homo sapiens surviving on the planet. And I'm pro-planet. And so whether we get energy, enough energy is frankly not a big concern to me. I don't care. I don't really care. What I care about is that we protect the ecosystem. You probably want to cut that out. <laughs> It's true. You know, like we've been such bad neighbors on this planet. I don't think we deserve to live in this neighborhood anymore. You throw the bad neighbors out, get rid of them, you know, and we've been really crappy neighbors on this planet. And I'm, I just wanted us to do the least amount of damage on our way out. Mm. I, I want to ask like, if you form a water, a water council, a watershed council in your area, and you were wanting to say get, I mean, if it was appropriate in that area to daylight to, to make a creek come back, what's the steps that a watershed council that you've created with your neighbors? Do you approach your local government or what would be some of the steps you try to take these actions? Well, yeah, you know, of course, well, you know, and Nick Bertulis is a good person to talk to about this because he's done it in the city of Oakland. Mm -hmm. He's daylighted a creek. Um, but for sure, you know, you're going to have a bunch of engineers on your hands right away. You're going to have a lot of legal questions about it. You know, if you're trying to daylight it just on your own property, that's one thing. But, hey, I'm trying to daylight a creek and it goes through 15 people's property. Now what do we do? Mm. Right? Most creeks that are um, buried, there's something there. Or, or the space is so small, you know, between two neighbors, like, and the neighbors are, are responsible for those creek beds. And so then the question becomes, who pays for it? Who maintains it? And unfortunately, like back in the 
old days when they daylighted, stra daylighted Strawberry Creek, they didn't have all the rules and regulations that they do now. I think that project cost them like something like $500,000. Like now it would cost millions and millions of dollars because of all the um, legalities. And I'm not saying they're not appropriate legalities, um, but they are expensive legalities. And mm -hmm. so you've got to work through your city. It, here in the East Bay, you'd probably have to work through uh, BCDC, uh, which stands for Bay Life Conservation Delta. I forget what it stands for. Um, but you, there are so many agencies. Oh, my God. You'd have to work. Yeah, the number of agencies that you just have to get to agree on something. Right. What seems like maybe what you need to do is like get a lot of different watersheds and people telling their stories about their watershed. Absolutely. And if there's a lot of covering of this creek, because I was kind of shocked to hear about it and upset when I heard that. And I don't think a lot of people know, right? That And they would probably get upset to know that there's a creek and it got buried in their neighborhood. So kind of working this storytelling angle so that this story becomes more a meme in the whole larger cultural Absolutely. context. And then it's easier to then kind of push for action because now it's like, a cultural story that would tell Yeah. So one of the things that we were doing right before COVID shut us down was we had just gotten money to get a bunch of school kids out on the street painting the name of their creek on the sidewalk next to their school that ran, you know, the creek runs right through their schoolyard. I'm going to do the same thing with Derby Creek. They used to have Temescal Creek marked, but then they redid the sidewalks with the new school and didn't remark the creek. But you know, hey, I'm living right over Derby Creek. I'm a water person and didn't even know I was living over a creek. It took my, this tree told me. This willow tree, which is a water-loving tree that I planted from a flower arrangement and then never watered. And it grew to 65 feet. Mm. So I had to say to myself, how did that happen? And that got me looking at watershed maps. And this is how I got into watersheds. I can blame it all on the tree in my backyard. You know, I was like, wow, no kidding. I'm right over a creek. Same thing you just said. I had no idea. That's really cool. I just made a, a, a number sign for my house. What does it say on it? Derby Creek. You know, like, why is my dog named Moki? Because her full name is McCalmne. So I can tell people when they ask, where did that name come from? I can tell them about the McCalmne River. I'm 100% with you, Alpha. What we need to do now is get the stories out. I'm about to do organize a storytelling night about the Salsa Creek. Just come here, tell your stories about Salsa. Let's all fall in love with the creek. It's, it's so much that people just don't know. It's not that they don't care. Once they know, they actually do care. It is a story that interests a lot of people, even people that are busy, even people that are trying to figure out how to feed their families. They love these stories. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a, uh, uh, there's a, yeah, it's, it's uh, I heard the term uh, that some people I know are using bioregional weavers kind of, and they're kind oh, of story. Nice. It's kind of like story weaving mm -hmm. everything that's going on. And it also seems to me that it's, it might also help with fire deterrent too. Like you're bringing back all the creeks in an urban and also in the surrounding area that the, having the water up at the surface should be more of a deterrent to the fire than, you know, all submerged underground in pipes, you know? Absolutely. It's not doing any good. That, you know, um, here in California, we um, sometimes say it, while it is a, a drought of um, precipitation, even more so, it's a drought of trans, uh, evapotranspiration in the fact that we're losing so much because it's getting hotter. We're losing so much water out of the soil and out of the plants that things are burning a lot more easily. Mm. And that's why when people say, oh, well, you know, it's the traditional amount of land that's always burnt in California. Yes, but not catastrophic fires that burn the soil down five inches so that nothing's going to regrow like for the next 20 years. Those are not the kind of fires that we used to have. But exactly what you're talking about, that there's not enough uh, water just in the atmosphere. That's why, again, people talking about collecting fog water. Great. What's that going to do to the water in the air? What's that going to do to all the water in the air if we're taking the water out of the air? Like, 
Think about it, people. Yes, all these fascinating technologies, great. What's the long-term impact? And so, yes, what would be the long-term impact of allowing the creeks to have their, their day again? Um, it, it would cool down towns. It would make them so much um, damper in a good way. There would be so much more uh, water in the air just naturally evaporating out of the creeks and keeping us all cool and, um, you know, keeping things from burning the way they are catastrophically. Mm. Yeah. So from an anthropological point of view, I know you brought different demographics together too to kind of help with this changing the water situation. Do you want to say a little bit about how you brought some different demographics and how they work together to kind of create change in California? Yeah. Um, I would not say I'm bringing them together, but I would say that I'm uh, trying to... Well, maybe bring them together is the right word. I am trying to weave groups together. It's a really interesting time because here, you know, thank God, Black Lives Matter movement really got the awareness back, back on black and brown people. Turn on your TV, every commercial has a black and brown person in it now. That's amazing and awesome. Um, what's the point I was going to make? Um, oh, uh, different people's. At the same time, you know, like every bit of funding that you can get, they want people of color to be part of that story or disadvantaged communities to be part of that story. Again, awesome. But guess what that's doing to the communities of color? Everybody, it's so bizarre. It's like everybody wants a piece of them right now. You know, poor Segorite Land Trust, which is one of the um, Native American groups here in the Bay Area. Everybody wants them to be involved in what they're doing. You know, and I'm like, just tell me what you guys need and I'll try to support that as opposed to me telling you what I'm doing and you support me. And I think that is still one of the errors that we're making is we're going to groups you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman, in case you can't tell. Um, and so, you know, I have been hitting up like a group in Richmond for the last five years because I've been working in Richmond, which is largely a community of people of color. And no response, no response, no response. And then we just did an event uh, out there, Cal Academy of Sciences organized it, and Holy H2O was a co-organizer. And little by little, we're getting the groups that are people of color groups from the city of Richmond to come to these events. Little by little by little. Because it now serves them. It's not just about them serving us. Like now, they are interested in getting people out into the watershed, which maybe wasn't on their radar five years ago. And so it's coming from both sides, which is why I'm saying I'm not making it happen. Mm. I do feel like I, yeah, I'm kind of over the white person part of this story. You know, I, I, I really want to do a podcast called White People Ruin Everything, <laughs> you know? And, and, and um, that's not just, I'm not saying that to placate anybody. It's really true. And I feel like at this point, the, East Bay has an enormous population of people of color. They are absent largely from uh, um, ecological events, uh, environmental happenings, and um, it's only been because of Latino outdoors, uh, Afro outdoors, that like the movement started from within. And now that makes them more interested in connecting with somebody who's a white woman running an organization, I would say the bulk of the people working for me are either women or people, not working for me, but with me, are women and people of color. But the head of the org is a white woman, right? I mean, my board is largely people of color by percentage. Um, but it's taken a long time 
for the outdoors to become something of interest to this community, to these communities. Mm. And because they have started movements themselves, that awareness is now turning towards groups that might be run by white people, but might have resources or things that are of benefit to the nonprofits or community groups that are people of color. Mm. And so I think that and the fact that we are focusing on um, BIPOC histories in, in our project now, and we're focusing on getting these stories into the grade and high schools around, which again, are largely people of color going to the grade and high schools here. So, you know, I, I feel like this weaving together is really just starting. Mm. I don't feel like it's been going on for a really long time. I feel like we are just, it's really been only in the last year that groups have come to me that literally I've been reaching out to for the last four years and they'll walk up to me in an event and say, hey, I, I think it'd be great for us to do something together. And, that, and I feel like that's almost what has to happen. Mm. You know, like I, I've, like I said, reached out and made myself available. And now there's much more interest. Uh, and what I am offering is of more value to those groups now, but I feel like only because it grew from within to begin with. Right. Yeah, that's good to hear that there's a lot more direction from those groups and yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's not, and it, again, it's as it should be. Like, mm. white people should not be leading people of color, you know, into the new rooms. I think we should be either walking in hand in hand or people of color should walk in first and then invite us in to share the space with them. That's just where we are in, in history right now. And white people have to suck it up and, 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 and deal with the fact that they're not the stars of the show right now. And you're in a very interesting area too, in the East Bay, in right. the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay, which kind of leads a lot of this movement too, yeah. um, the social justice movement. Um, and you also do work bringing, or you have in the past brought like when you were working with California lawmakers, um, that whole crowd bringing kind of this hippie water people, right? And bringing yeah. them to, to connect and, and like, because some of these hippies had more of the knowledge about the water that you brought to the lawmakers. You wanna say a little bit about how that-, that... Sure, when we started, or when I started Holy H2O, well, I do say we, because I started it with the help of other people and really, because they wanted it. Um, uh, you know, who knew at the time? Who really knew about rainwater and gray water? It was, I'm gonna tell you, it was not Marin Municipal Water District. It wasn't Metropolitan Water District. Who knew about it were people who were living in edgy situations, who needed to collect their water, wanted to collect their water. You know, they're living off-grid. You know, it's a lot of the off-grid lifestyle is where these technologies got um, re- yeah, re rebirthed, I guess I'll say. And so gray water, who was doing gray water? You know, a bunch of hippies were doing gray water. Occidental Arts and Ecology is doing gray water, right? And so who knew about it? Well, in 2009, it was only the hippies that knew about it. And so how could I, when I'm trying to get um, the city of Santa Monica, which in fact was focused on rainwater and gray water. They knew some stuff back then. How, how can I get everybody together? How can I get Neil Shapiro from the city of Santa Monica up here talking to Brock Dolman, who knows a lot more than Neil does, but Neil doesn't know that yet. And so how do I get him, but Brock, you know, is, you know, a, no offense, Brock, but, you know, kind of like long hair, barefoot, you know, kind of guy. And, I, and, and I'm just saying, put, tie your hair back and put on a tie. And I'm going to sit you next to Neil Shapiro in a panel. And you're going to get just as much as respect as Neil Shapiro does in that moment. You know, and again, Brock is, you know, loved and at that time highly treasured already by the permaculture community, but not, and, and his own local community, because Brock has always been engaged with the local government. 
but not in a greater scale. And so because I had those connections back then, I was just a person really, again, like I said, I didn't know any, I would always say, I'm not the expert, I just know the experts. And so I was really good at bringing the experts together. And those people didn't look anything like each other. Like there was a pot of water engineers in, in Sebastopol that really knew a lot, but they didn't, they weren't working with the hippie people or the guys down at Stanford who are now doing all the water reuse stuff. Um, you know, it was all, they, they didn't know very much about gray water and water reuse. And so they were coming to meetings and presenting the little bit they knew, sitting next to somebody who actually knew a lot more than them. Craig Criddle, Sandy Robertson, you know, these guys who are now doing mega large scale water reuse, you know? So it was such kind of like a scrappy heyday kind of moment for water reuse where you could get, you know, and it was before, um, uh, before Zoom and before webinars and, you just had to meet in person. What year was this around? Again, 2009, 2010 okay. through about 2013, we did these on a regular basis. And it would be great because even if there were 60 people in the room, I'd have everybody go around, say their name, what water agency or what their connection was. And I'd have people sitting next to each other in the front seat and one would say their name and the next would say their name and they'd look at each other and say, we've been trying to meet for the last eight years, you know? And so what was great about those early forums that we had was that a lot of new businesses came out of them. Like people would, it really in a way wasn't even the topic at hand. It was just getting all those people into the same room to talk to each other. And, and then new businesses started, new um, programs started, all sorts of things came out of those early Holy H2O meetings. And then, you know, we worked with, um, uh, a gray water action and I forget who else and we did a year of gray water meetings at East Bay Municipal uh, Utility District so EB Mud and same thing SFPUC used to host our meetings at their um, at their offices so that immediately gives Holy H2O a kind of respectability or EB Mud hosts our uh, gray water meetings immediately gives us a level of respectability and then it's easy to put the call out to environmental health uh, uh, building department uh, uh, water agencies all the different watershed agencies all of the different groups coming together in one space with the people that really knew with the people that needed to know and fortunately, there was a lot of humility in those rooms. And I appreciated that a lot. And, um, and it was because of that that so many great things grew out of it. And how did it, how did it happen? When, I mean, like Brock Dolman is probably presenting a somewhat different paradigm than the Stanford engineers around water. So what happens when they had different paradigms of what to do? Well, you know, in the early days, they didn't because there weren't very many people that knew anything. So the Stanford guys hadn't even developed their stuff yet. Now they're doing uh, like, and again, I'm not saying this all because of Holy H2O. I'm just saying that there were a lot of initial conversations that gave people ideas that they would not have had otherwise. And then people at those meetings who they could follow up with and say, help me understand more. And so, you know, those guys could then call Brock or Neil Shapiro. I, I'm trying to remember what was the great, there was one really great combo of people um, where it changed both of the organizations fundamentally by them working together. Um, in any case, yeah, the, uh, what was great was that the hippies were the ones that knew wow. at the time. They were the ones that knew. Laura Allen, she was the one who knew, you know? And again, I didn't know, you know, I'm just making the space for all the people that knew to talk to each other. And so the gray water laws uh, were passed in California in part out of that 
synergy of multiple demographics. Yes, but that happened even beforehand. That was, I would say, my fast education was going to those meetings and learning a lot from people like Brock who spoke up at them or Laura Allen who spoke up at them or um, uh, Art Ludwig and um, another guy down in San Diego who really, oh, Steve, God, sorry, Steve, um, who was one of the first people who got everything going on gray water in the state. Um, and all those people would fly up to the meetings and frankly, I would just sit there and learn and, and, and agree with them. And, you know, at the time, I had, you know, I had a PhD. And even though, like, people don't care what your PhD is in, just because you have one, they think you know things. It's so wacky <laughs> to me. But that was why I got to put the groups together or stand up in meetings and say things because I was Dr. Elizabeth Doherty and not just Brock Dolman, you know? And then I would just, I'd make the, you know, meet the people to begin with. And then I'd say, here, talk to Brock, you know, because I don't know what, I don't know anything. I'm just here, you know? And so, um, yeah, those guys, those guys really, the, the people I keep naming, those are the people who were the foundation and I just helped them weave that foundation together. Mm. So if someone is listening to this and they're in some city and they want to change the water paradigm there and they want to bring in different demographics to kind of to do this to kind of how, how what do you have any suggestions or tips for how they can bring in these different demographics together in their city? Um, well, yeah, sure. First of all, get to know your water agency, get to know a couple people in your conservation department. I know all the people that work for the most part in the conservation department here at EB Mudd. And that, um, and then I have an ongoing conversation with them. Uh, go to the board meetings of your local water agency, get to know the board, okay? These are people who are gonna be your advocates. And you know, I'm friends with somebody on the board of EB Mudd and she, if I write her, she'll write me back within 24 hours and give me info or pass me on to the right person. And that, I've just made a big effort that way. I've gone to those meetings and stood up and been the really obnoxious person so they, everybody remembers me, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Pushing for rainwater and gray water for all those years. And, um, and then you, you know, I almost guarantee you that there's already a watershed organization that either does exist or used to exist. And you can find those people, even if they're not still running it, and saying, you know, what did you do in the past? What could we do in the future? Find the people like I did that know way more than you and learn from them. Like, that's a great starting point. The very first meeting, I just called a meeting in my living room. 60 people showed up. I was shocked. All sort water engineers, all sorts of people. I would never have guessed wanted to talk about water reuse, you know, shocked. And that, that was even before, that was way back in like 2000. And how did you meet the engineers or how, how would people go about meeting engineers around water? Yeah, that is, you know, that's partly because I was working in, in, um, in a different field first. And so I had some ins into cities on the energy efficiency side. And then mm. I could just call them and say, hey, now I'm doing water, who's doing water? But same thing. So I guess network your way in. Network kind of, your so, way in, and then it's fun. Yeah. Just go to, you know, lots of water agencies have talks, you know, go to a talk. That's how I met the woman who ran the watershed department for the city of Oakland. She gave a talk, fascinating. I learned so many things from going to that talk and then met a whole bunch of people. I introduced myself to her and then I just harassed her for the next 13 years, you know, until she retired and escaped, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but she's now up in Grass Valley and, you know, interested in water stuff up there. So yeah, I just, I'm always showing up at events and introducing myself to people and just talking to them about what they're doing. A big part of it, I would say, is curiosity. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, I don't need to just tell people what I'm doing, 
go and be curious. Tell me what you're doing. How do I learn more about this? How do I become an advocate for this very thing? Mm. Yeah, be curious. Cool. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I like this approach a lot. And then also I heard from someone um, who was a watershed manager, Heidi Petty, and she was saying mm. that if you just form a water council in your area and then you talk to local government, you get a lot more of their ear too. Totally. Because now you're more formalized and you, and you have research too that you've done. They'll start listening to you. And so... Well, yeah, and, and behind every watershed group are generally huge amounts of people that are volunteering for that group. Mm. You know, like uh, Friends of Sausal Creek. They've been going for 25 or 30 or years or more, more probably. They have had thousands and thousands and thousands of people be involved. Friends of Five Creeks down the road here. Also, Susan Schwartz. It's been doing this forever. She knows so many people, so many people involved. So if there's a watershed group, there's also hundreds or thousands of people associated with that group. Mm. And that's a great way to whip up interest in um, taking it to the next step. Yeah. And then your water group could could actually invite different demographics and have them, you know, have a meeting like you did, totally. like bring them all together, yeah. like you had in your house. and Yeah. Yeah. 